0: Well, not only is it Easter Sunday, but it is also April 1st, which Google tells me that since 1956, there has not been an April 1st and Easter Sunday uh, since. It was on April 1st, about 15 years ago, it was actually on a Friday, that uh, some of my colleagues at work decided that we were going to pull a prank on one of our newest co-workers, Uh, And so, and Tracy was very gullible. She fell for pretty well uh, anything. And uh, I don't know if it's the name Tracy, but it's, that's what her name was, Tracy. Well, no, you just seemed hurt that I said Tracy. They looked at you. Uh, Okay, no, not this Tracy, a different Tracy. Anyways, it was a Friday afternoon. We worked in Toronto. Traffic is crazy. Tracy was a cottage love her. So we knew that she was heading east to her cottage. Uh, so at about 3.30 in the afternoon, we decided that we were going to pull a prank on her. And so we got two boxes that were actually empty. And we taped them up and put labels on them. And I, being her boss, said, Tracy, we are in a panic situation. We have to get two boxes of samples out to a client. No ifs, ands, or buts. None of our drivers are available. I've got to get you to take it. And we'll even load the car for you. And so we put these two empty boxes into her car and had had her heading out from Scarborough to Mississauga. Uh, And we waited about 30 minutes so that she was right in the thick of the traffic. And then we put her on a conference call and called her, Tracy, you have got to pull over. There is a problem with what you've got. We may not have given you the right samples. You've got to pull over, open one of the boxes, and tell us what's inside. And she said, Brent, like I'm in the middle of the 401. Well, pull off, get off and off ramp, pull over, call us back once you're there and tell us what you've got inside. And of course, so she phones back 10 minutes later and says, okay, I am totally confused. These boxes are empty. And in unison, we said, April Fool's. (laughs) April Fool's is celebrated only in certain countries and is commemorated by doing pranks or spreading hoaxes. Uh, And those hoaxes and those pranks and those who fall for them are referred to as April Fool's. History is filled with all sorts of wonderful pranks. I'm sure we could all get up here and share our favorite April Fool's prank Uh, One of my favorite uh, has to be what Burger King did. Uh, I'm going to read it so I don't miss any of the details. On April 1st, 1998, Burger King published a full-page advertisement in an American newspaper announcing the introduction of a new item to their menu, a left-handed Whopper, especially designed for the 32 million left-handed Americans. According to the advertisement, the new Whopper included the same ingredients as the original Whopper, But all the items were rotated 180 degrees for the benefit of their left-handed customers. The next day, Burger King had to issue a follow-up. The follow-up press release said that although the left-handed Whopper was a hoax, thousands of customers had gone into restaurants to request the new sandwich. Simultaneously, according to the press release, many others had requested their own right-handed version. <laughs> Thousands of people fall for pranks, making themselves out to be fools because they believe something that's entirely not true. One of my favorite stories in the Easter account has to do with two travelers who are determined that they're not going to be made fools of. Jesus has just been crucified. Uh, He's been buried. And these travelers are disappointed. They're disappointed that Jesus didn't turn out to be who they thought he actually was. They're disappointed in themselves because they'd actually fallen for it. They're disappointed with God because God hadn't sent the true Messiah. And so they threw in the towel, and they were heading home, having given up all hope. Not even the witness uh, accounts from the woman that we read earlier about seeing the empty tomb and, and hearing what the angels had to say was going to convince them. A dead Messiah had no part of their theology besides, if Jesus was alive, why hadn't he shown himself yet? This was the afternoon. Apparently, the empty tomb was seen in the morning. They absolutely refused to believe this hoax. But little did they know that traveling on that very same road, they were going to encounter Jesus himself. And the question that Luke, who who writes us this account, the question that Luke wants us to ask is this. What's going to change those two travelers' minds? What is going to convince them that the woman's account is true? That Jesus has risen from the dead. He is the Messiah. The tomb is empty. Well, I think the obvious answer, and the answer that I would have given up until the time I studied this passage in this last week, is that Jesus appeared to them. What more proof does someone need that Jesus is alive than to have Jesus himself appear physically right before you? I mean, that would turn discouragement in anyone to hope. That would change despair to joy in anyone if Jesus would appear and reveal himself as the risen Savior right on that very path that they're traveling. But that isn't how the story goes. In fact, in what I found to be a very surprising main point of Luke's account, which is in his first post-resurrection account, and he dedicates so much time and space to it, Jesus intentionally doesn't reveal his identity until the very end. Because he wants these travelers to be convinced of his identity and what he had accomplished through a proper understanding of Scripture. Jesus had a very important lesson for these travelers to do with trusting the promises of the written word before Jesus was going to reveal himself as the living word. To them, A lesson that discouragement and despair can change to hope and to joy if we seek the risen Savior through faith in the Scriptures. And this isn't just an Easter message. And it doesn't just apply to these two travelers that we're going to read about. Because I think a lot of us here this morning have experienced disappointment with God. Maybe it's because our plans and our ambitions, our desires, our our goals, they don't match God's sovereign plan. And so we find ourselves wrestling with God, wrestling with disappointment. Or maybe we find ourselves disappointed with God because our selective belief in certain parts of Scripture doesn't line up with some of the experiences that we find ourselves having. And so maybe we're out there serving God, witnessing, sharing our faith, and yet we're surprised to find that people are rejecting us. That people are opposed to our message. Kind of what we're seeing in, in, in our series in 1 Peter. And so we find ourselves disappointed with God. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not disappointed with God, you just don't really have anything to do with God. And perhaps it's because you just haven't come to grasp the truth about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for you. And the lesson is the same regardless of those situations. And that is that disappointment can change to hope and despair can change to joy as we seek truth and understanding through the instruction and through the promises and through the promised one of Scripture. Katie has already read for us the background uh, to this story. There's a very important feature of Luke's account that I don't want you to miss. And that's the note of surprise. A key feature in all of Luke 24 is that the woman, the two travelers, the disciples, they are all surprised that Jesus rose from the dead. There's not a hint in what Luke tells us that they anticipated or were expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Clearly, they hadn't understood what Jesus had told them. Clearly, they hadn't understood what their scriptures had said to them. In fact, the very first people who needed to be convinced concerning the resurrection of Jesus is his closest followers. The first post-resurrection skeptics are the disciples. And the close followers of Jesus. And so as Katie read to us, the woman went on Sunday morning with some spices. And they totally expected that they were going to find the remains of Jesus. The first hint that there was something wrong was that the stone was moved away. So they stuck their heads into the tomb and they realized it was empty. And the text tells us that they were perplexed. They were distressed. They were confused. And then all of a sudden, two angels appear. And of course, they're frightened. And the two angels mildly rebuke them, but give them an explanation. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? You're not going to find Jesus here. He's risen from the dead. Don't, Don't you remember what Jesus said when he was alive? He said... That the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And so crucial are those words, He must be. It implies necessity. It implies divine design. Ladies, God isn't surprised that the tomb is empty. And neither should you be. Because this was God's plan all along. He's orchestrating the events step by step by step. Ladies, you just wasted a whole lot of unnecessary money on spices. Because God is in control. Jesus has risen from the dead. And suddenly it hit the woman. And they remembered the words of Jesus. And they had understanding. Death and resurrection, it was a necessity. These things that have happened have happened to fulfill prophecy and immediately the woman had to go tell somebody. So they ran off to tell the disciples and all the others who had gathered with the disciples. But as convinced as the woman might have been, not so much everybody else. The text says that that they, they heard what the woman had to say and they just figured it was emotional hysteria. The word that's actually used is a, a word that would have been used to describe someone who was sick in the head, who just was saying crazy things. Someone who was emotionally distressed and didn't know what they were saying. The only glimmer of hope is that, that Peter ran off to the empty tomb. You know, It's hard to figure out exactly the chronology of all the visits to the empty tomb. Did, did Peter go on his own and find the empty tomb? And he looked in and he was perplexed and confused. And some say he just went home. It was later that he went with John to the tomb. Or maybe that he went with John and, and Luke just doesn't mention John. But the majority of them just don't believe the woman whatsoever. Including these two travelers that we read about next. And so if you've got your Bible, uh, turn to Luke 24. And let's read the account of these two travelers on the road to Emmaus. Ben, I think the, uh, the text is on a slide as well, if you want to put it up as well. So Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them, and so who are the t- two of them? It's two uh, close followers of Jesus that were with the 11 disciples when the woman came back and told them everything that had taken place. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. I love this story. In fact, I think a lot of us love this story. and There's a lot of real human reasons that we love this story. One is, as the British would say, it's a real cheeky story because it's kind of poking fun at these two travelers who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, I think another reason we like it is is because we know more than the characters in the story do right up front. It's kind of like Undercover Boss or one of those YouTube videos where a celebrity goes undercover. And we know all along who it actually is, but the people in the video don't. And so we read the story and we want to yell out, "Ah, hello, it's Jesus. Look closer. It's Jesus right with you but they don't get it. They don't know that it's Jesus. And a third reason I love this story is because it has a real relevant message to those who feel that they are too insignificant and too broken that Jesus would want to have a personal encounter with, with them. If you were the publicity manager for Jesus... And you were responsible for his post-resurrection appearances. Where would you have Jesus appear? I'm thinking the 11 disciples marching behind him right down the main street of Jerusalem. Maybe taking a couple of selfies in front of the cross. And and maybe going to the torn torn veil at the temple. uh, Or maybe just gathering in front of the temple with thousands of people arranged to be there. But where does Jesus appear? He appears on a dusty road to a place where, that the remains of don't even exist anymore. Emmaus. Out in the country. To two unknown travelers. All we know is that one's name was Cleopas. We don't even know if the other one was a man, a woman. Maybe it was Cleopas's wife, a, a friend, a brother, a sister. We don't know who the other person even was. And yet Jesus chose to humble himself and to have this significant post-resurrection appearance to these two unknown men on the road, to or two unknown travelers uh, on the road to Emmaus. And if you're here this morning and you feel kind of insignificant, and maybe you've resisted the message and the person of Jesus because you just feel that he would not want to have anything to do with someone like you. Maybe you're too broken, too much baggage. It's just not true. And maybe this morning, Jesus wants to meet you and to encounter you on the road to Auburn Bible Chapel. And so Luke introduces us to the three characters in the story. First is Jesus. And Jesus in this account, and this is so important to to, to get this into your mind. Jesus appears as an unknown Stranger. He is just one of many travelers on the road to Emmaus. In fact, he's going beyond Emmaus, as we will find out. They cannot identify who Jesus is. It says his his identity was hidden from them. Maybe because their belief that Jesus could not possibly have risen from the dead blinded them to the fact that it was Jesus with them. Maybe the marks of crucifixion were hidden from them. Ultimately, they were divinely kept from recognizing who it actually was traveling with them. There was only one thing that really stood out about Jesus. And that was that he came across kind of clueless. Like, is he the only person who's just been in Jerusalem and doesn't have a clue what just took place? Either He was there, but asleep in the wheel, or at the wheel. Or he's a little slow. Because you couldn't have been in Jerusalem and not known what was taking place. And so you have Jesus. And then you have the two travelers. They're leaving Jerusalem, heading to Emmaus. Or possibly just heading to the countryside. They're getting out of Jerusalem. All hope is gone. In fact, for them, everything is over. Everything they hoped in, everything they anticipated, everything that they were expecting, everything that fit into their explanations of the way things should be had been crushed. And so they were sad, and they were gloomy, and they were confused, and they had thrown in the towel, and they're going home. The Passover is done, and there's no need to stay in Jerusalem. How could they have been so wrong, they ask themselves. How could it possibly have turned out this way? About the things that had taken place. And I think we can imagine their conversation. Like, I don't get it. Like on Monday he just came into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. And the people, the crowds, they were praising him. They were hailing him as the son of David. They were praising him with hosanna as the Messiah. And then on Tuesday he cleared out the temple. And for the next few days he dominated the temple. Such powerful, powerful teaching. But then he was arrested. He went through this this mock trial. And they beat him. And they made him carry the cross to his place of crucifixion. And then they killed him. The person that we thought was the Messiah is dead. How could we have been such fools? Well, it's at this point that Jesus who's traveling along, and it would have been quite common for people to be traveling on the same road. That's how they got, place to place. Jesus came alongside them and asked that real strategic question. He knows what they're talking about. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what's at the very core of their dilemma. But he says to them anyways, so, what are you talking about? You imagine the look on their face. They're sad, and they're gloomy, and they are astonished that anyone who's just come out of Jerusalem could be asking that question. But they show Jesus a bit of grace, and so they explain. And they explain how they had believed and had hoped that this Jesus was the promised Messiah, but that he had been put to death. And they they realized that he wasn't the Messiah. He was just a prophet. Oh, a great prophet. A true prophet of God. But just a prophet. Just like the other prophets who had died before him. And then they went on to explain some other information that they'd misunderstood. uh, Or had failed to to fully understand. uh, Or had chosen to, to, to neglect. But then they came to the crux. Of their dilemma in verse 21. In verse 21, it says, But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That was the issue. They were looking for a liberator, they were expecting kingdom redemption, triumphant redemption. They were expecting liberation from Roman occupation. They were expecting the glory of the Messiah's promised kingdom. But what they weren't expecting was for the one who they thought was the Messiah to die. And so Jesus had got it out of them. That's why he asked the question. He wanted them to realize what the problem was so he could talk a little bit more about it. And so we can identify what's fueling their disappointment. First of all, they misunderstood redemption, which makes such little sense. Their Old Testament scriptures were filled with redemption. They knew that to redeem something involved paying a price. That's what it meant to redeem something. It meant to buy something back. And they just celebrated Passover, where they had given the life of a a substitute animal as a price for forgiveness. And so they knew that redemption involved a price, and when it came to forgiveness, they knew that redemption involved the price of a substitute, the life of something. But they failed to understand that Jesus was going to be the final price for redemption. They couldn't connect the dots and realize that redemption's final price was the life of the Messiah. And so instead, when Jesus is put to death, they automatically disqualified Jesus as possibly being the Messiah to them. And so they misunderstood redemption. And the other thing that fueled their disappointment is that they they only partially believed the scriptures. And they neglected other parts of it. If they had read all that their scriptures had to say about the coming Messiah, they would have read that the message of the coming Messiah was one of suffering and glory. We talked about that on Friday. That suffering came before the glory, but, but suffering was actually part of his glory. But the Jewish people of that day, they resisted the suffering part and they only focused on the glory part. They held rigorously to the idea of of a non-suffering Messiah. a, A triumphant king, but not a suffering servant. Their theology, their minds could not process. A Messiah that had to die. And then the third thing that fueled their disappointment was simply they hadn't seen Jesus. If Jesus had risen like the angel said, if Jesus had risen just like Jesus himself had said on the third day, then where is he? It's now the middle, later than the middle of the afternoon, and Jesus has not appeared. We haven't seen him. But they never would recognize Jesus for who he is and for what he had accomplished if they didn't understand and have a proper understanding of what redemption really meant and really involved. And they wouldn't see Jesus for who he was and for what he had accomplished if they wouldn't accept the full message concerning the promised Messiah, that it was one of suffering and of glory. And, you know, 2,000 years later, I don't think things have changed. Because there are people who fail to see Jesus for who he is and for what he has accomplished because they fail to understand the doctrine of redemption. That forgiveness involves a price. Redemption involves a price. Our sin has a wage. We fail to see Jesus for who he is and what he's accomplished when we only believe parts of the Bible to be true. And we know people. Well, God's a good God. He wouldn't, he wouldn't punish good people. And so we fail to see Jesus for who he is and for what he's accomplished when we fail to understand what Scripture truly is teaching. At this point in the story, Jesus is going to turn the tables. If you look at verse 25, Jesus says to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. These two travelers had tried so hard not to be made fools of and Jesus rebukes them for being fools for their for their lack of spiritual insight for their for their inability to believe all that the scriptures and all that the prophets had taught them if they just opened their ears and opened their eyes they would have realized what the scriptures did say. That, that the Messiah must suffer. And so then Jesus begins to point them through the Old Testament scriptures. To present to them the, the full truth concerning the Messiah. And can you imagine the kind of message that would have been? A an Old Testament survey uh, on redemption that points to the promised Messiah given by the promised Messiah himself. We'd love to know all that Jesus said to those two travelers. I think we can probably guess a lot. On Friday, we actually did that exercise. I think verse 26 gives us a clue. They had the glory down pat. Jesus says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? I think Jesus first focused on the necessity for the Messiah to die. Because these travelers knew, they just celebrated Passover. They knew that sin necessitated death. Uh, The bloody death of animal substitutes filled the pages of their people's history. Sin caused death. But they knew that God would accept a substitute. But they knew that God wasn't completely satisfied with an animal substitute. And that's why year after year, after year after year, over and over and over again, they had to sacrifice animals the forgiveness for the covering of their sin but what jesus says if you'd open your eyes and your ears to the scriptures way back to what moses had to say you would have recognized that god promised that one day there would come one who would be the final and the perfect sacrifice and i'm sure he would have taken them back to genesis like we talked about on friday And he would have pointed out how the Messiah was the one that was going to crush the serpent's head. How the Messiah would be the one who would perfectly cover the guilt of sin. How God had promised to Abraham and Isaac that he would provide and that the promised Messiah would be the ultimate offering for sin to be given Uh, exodus he would have turned to and showed how the messiah was the true passover lamb and how the messiah would truly cover sinners guilt and protect them from divine judgment he would point them to deuteronomy how the messiah is the one who would be hanged on a tree and cursed by god psalm 22 where the messiah is the one who spoke my god my god why have you forsaken me he, the Messiah is the one who would be seared at, whose bones would have been out of joint, whose strength would be gone, whose hands and feet would be pierced, whose clothes would be divided by lot. He would point to Isaiah 53. How could those travelers have missed Isaiah 53? That tells us that the Messiah would be that final and perfect sacrifice. And he would have pointed to other prophecies, ones that they actually saw take place right there in Jerusalem. How Zechariah said that he would come riding into Jerusalem on a pony, And how the psalmist said he would be hated for no reason, and he'd be betrayed by a friend, and Zechariah, who said that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and Isaiah, who said that he'd be included with criminals in his death, and then he would have turned to Psalm 16, and given that great promise that the Messiah would not experience corruption in the grave, but that he'd be risen from the dead, and if he had Paul's writings, I'm sure he would have turned them to Philippians 2, and said that God has exalted Jesus, who humbled himself unto death and he's at the right hand of God, that at the name everyone is going to bow. And by the time that Jesus got to the end of his message, I am sure that they were staggering and stunned by all that Jesus had to say. It says in verse 32 that their hearts burned within them. And that fire was the joy that was overwhelming them. The scriptures are true. Jesus is the Messiah. Everything that God had said would happen. Everything that God had planned has been fulfilled. And Jesus is alive. But don't miss this. It's so amazing. They didn't know who Jesus was. He was still a stranger talking to them on the road to Emmaus. His appearance was still hidden from him. What was firing in their belly was that they understood Scripture. That they had their eyes open and they were able to believe the prophecies and everything was fulfilled in Jesus. They didn't even know that physically Jesus was in front of them, but the Scriptures had been opened up to them and they c- caught the truth. And to understand scripture is to understand God and to understand what his plans are and what his purposes are and that they were being fulfilled right before their very eyes and that they pointed to this person named Jesus and that Jesus was the Messiah and that he died just like he said he would, but that he had risen from the dead just like he said he would, proving that he was the son of God, proving that he was God, proving that everything that he said he could do and would do, he could do which meant he could forgive their sins and he could grant eternal life and he could give real joy and real peace and he could take disappointment and throw it into the wind. Now you know why they didn't want him to go. And my time is gone, although, and this was not an April Fool's joke, Allison, who's teaching Sunday school, told Luke Luke Miller to tell me, go long, I've got a lot to cover downstairs, but I won't do that. We can just fellowship together while we wait for our kids to come upstairs. They didn't want this stranger to go. And so Jesus had said he was going beyond Emmaus, I think, probably just to test them, to see what their response was going to be. They want more. And so they invite the stranger, Jesus, to dine with them. And so those last verses, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Now, now this is whacked. (laughs) He's not the host. Jesus is the visitor at these people's home, but he takes the bread. And this is just Norton. They're having a meal. He's just breaking bread, and they'd be dipping it in whatever stuff they've got on the table, and that's the kind of food they ate. But Jesus took the bread, and he broke it, and he gave thanks. And their eyes were opened. And ultimately, God opened their eyes so that they could see the true identity of Jesus. I think it's cool to think it was as Jesus broke the bread, and he gave thanks And all of a sudden, they were reminded of the words that the disciples probably had shared with them that had taken place in that upper room. Or maybe as he broke the bread, all of a sudden, they could see the nail prints in his hands. And they knew, it's Jesus. And Jesus disappears. But they were so excited. I don't know how long it took them to walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. But I bet you they got from Emmaus back to Jerusalem twice as fast. Because they had to tell people that Jesus is alive. He is the Messiah. God is in control. There has been no mistake. There is no hoax. There is no April Fool's joke. Jesus is the promised Messiah. We have to tell everyone. People, the greatest service that we can render to others and this is very relevant when we consider our vision here at auburn the greatest service we can render to a person is to explain to them the meaning of scripture so that we can explain and point them to the savior of scripture jesus christ but we won't have that zeal that evangelistic fervor that those first disciples had unless we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures and allow the Spirit to open our eyes to its truth and the fullness of its message. And the one who is the star attraction of Scripture, Jesus Christ. Because He is alive. He is the Savior. And He wants to be the Savior to all. Our job is to share the good news that Jesus is alive learning.